you're supposed to be sitting in your buggy seat enjoying life listening to the radio and all of a sudden you're you're sitting in the aspen stand with shelter in hand thinking why the hell am i doing this job again when the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up act on it and the dude leading the hike out just stopped in his tracks and he made eye contact with me and he said the main fire is always an issue This is the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center podcast, the Nuttle Fire Series. I'm Alex Victora, Assistant Center Director of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center. As part of the 2017 Week of Remembrance, we're taking a look at a single shift on a single fire, the Nuttle Fire, which burned on the Coronado National Forest on the Safford Ranger District in July of 2004. If you've never been to the Coronado National Forest, it's the forest in southeastern Arizona that's made up of a number of sky islands, timbered mountain ranges which are surrounded by hot and dry low country. For those of you who'd like some visual aids to help you paint a picture of the Nettle Fire, the Aspen Stand, the Slopover, Drop Point 20, and Hellespots H4 and H6, check out the Nettle Fire videos on the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center YouTube channel. On today's Nuttle podcast, we hear from Thomas Taylor. In 2004, Thomas was a sawyer on the Flagstaff Interagency Hotshot Crew. You've already heard from Dan and Corey, squad leaders on the same Hotshot Crew. Thomas adds his perspective and fills us in a little bit more on what happened down at H4. Thomas offers a number of lessons. Some of them are operational and many of them have to do with leadership. Let's listen in now as Travis Dotson, Lessons Learned Center Analyst, and Thomas Taylor get going with the day. July 2nd, 2004, on the Nuttle Fire. Uh, My name is Thomas Taylor, and it'd be safe to say that I've had a colorful career with the Forest Service. Currently, I work on the Payette National Forest as a fire operations specialist on the Council Ranger District. And I was a sawyer on the Flagstaff hotshots during the Not All Fire deployment. All right, so um, what what I asked Dan and Corey, Tom, was just kind of, you know, your remembrance of that day. Yeah, it was my second year on Flagstaff, and we had engaged this, incident not all down in the desert and then of course it ran up into the timber so we went up and I believe we camped out at the lake up on top and then we were woken up fairly early you know typically there's uh, urgency to everything and we basically loaded up and we're told to go to DP20 and start securing the slop over and uh, Paul was going to hang out and get a briefing from the team and then meet up with us later so that's, you know, that's what we did, and everyone raced to the buggy. I'm not even sure if we had breakfast or not, but that's neither here nor there. But, yeah, so we went to DP20, and we got ready to roll, and uh, Corey and Danny and Todd, you know, started doing some scouting, and I just recall just kind of hanging out, you know, the hurry-up-and-wait game type of thing. And then more folks started showing up. You know, essentially our briefing was we have a slop over from the fire operations through the night and we need to pick that up and then we want to secure that and then carry line um, down to H4 and at that time I didn't know that the line had been complete but Mount Taylor had secured a line up from the bottom off the end of our line from the previous operation and so the intent was 
anchor in at DP20, pick up the slops, and then take fire down the ridge to H4 and beyond. And, you know, that's basically kind of what we did. I know that, uh, you know, there was um, – Corey and Danny were, you know, we had the ability to kind of speak our mind working with Paul. And Corey and Danny were floating around there, not necessarily uncertainty, but just something didn't feel right. And, um, you know, he had conversations with Todd, and that was kind of one of those things where I was, you know, not a part of that loop. So basically the intent was just what I said. Muster finally showed up, and Todd got posted up at the lookout, and I just remember going to work and kind of securing the slop over. Um, It got plumbed. And then Paul wasn't cool with how the line was prepped, so my saw partner and I uh, disengaged from the slop over, and we started cleaning up the line that we were going to fire off a little bit better with our saws. And so for me, Todd was the lookout. You know, we had our crew freak, and then our my escape route was back up the line to DP20. The safety zone was hopping the buggies and head back to the lake or start prepping the the main road up there going bigger box style. You'd had a previous season with the crew and yep. and, and to that point was it feeling like a kind of a normal shift or normal, you know, sky island fire, I guess? Uh yeah, it was just just another day in region 3, you know. I I uh was a Sawyer on a shot crew and that was kind of the window in which I was operating. And, so it was a normal shift, cut as fast as you can and try and make good decisions, drink plenty of water and, you know, and just work hard and have fun. When did it get not normal? <laughs> uh, when a 300-foot wall of flame came up over my head and I flipped out, started hyperventilating and, uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, I, I I can I can that's not part of every shift. So uh No, and you know, prior to that there was uh some movement going on. I remember I believe it was uh I the foreman off of one of the shot crews, they were hiking out and there was traffic between I believe it was Oh, I'm not going to make assumptions. There is traffic from our crew to our lookout about the main fire. And as this crew's hiking out, the response from our lookout was the main fire's not an issue. And the dude leading the hike out just stopped in his tracks and he made eye contact with me and he said, the main fire's always an issue and then just took off. And that didn't really set with me until, you know, until I was down at H4 and that fire came up out of the hole up over my head and, and you know, and then it was game on. Um, we started bucking stuff up and throwing shit over the, excuse me, stuff over the side of the the hill but once it started making its runs and coming up out of the hole constantly you know that's when I started freaking out basically and I remember 
seeing our crew just above H4 pull pitch and start heading back up the line. But of course it was dark and starting to get super smoky and we tried doing our best with our saws, but once I stopped working, then that's when my brain truly started to eat itself because I wasn't focused on a task. And there's a, a shot in the video that will be released, and I believe it's on page 20 of the actual report of me hunched over, not really enjoying myself and Hey, Tom, you all right? Yeah, give me a minute. Yep. Sometimes looking at a picture or describing an event is enough to send somebody back in time emotionally. As Tom looked at the picture of himself and Danny, his squad leader, and a few others on H4, it wasn't 2017 in rainy, cool McCall, Idaho. It was July 2nd, 2004, and Tom was on H4 on the Nettle Fire. All right, so, yeah, I'm hunched over in the on H4, and I'm totally freaking out, and <clears throat> Danny's consoling me. Just trying to keep me in check, because I was having a hard time. I don't like how I'm having a hard time now. And it was, you know, understandably chaotic down there, but um, for me, <clears throat> it was the first time that I was battle-tested. And, uh, you know, it was hard. Yeah, and the, the trippy thing is, is like, you know, I deployed in 30 Mile, and people died at my feet. And Sorry to cut in, but did you hear that? Let's listen one more time. You know, I deployed in 30 Mile, and people died at my feet. And That's right. Thomas is a survivor of the 30 Mile fire. If you're not familiar with the 30 Mile fire, maybe you should be. The 30 Mile fire burned on the Okanagan National Forest about 30 miles north of Winthrop, Washington. 30 Mile took the lives of four firefighters on July 10, 2001. Tom Craven, Karen Fitzpatrick, Jessica Johnson, and Devin Weaver. Thomas was in a fire shelter at 30 Mile. He survived. And as he's about to share with us, he tells his 30 Mile story often. I tell that story all the time. I've been telling that story for 16 years, and... It's, uh, this is truly one of the first times I've ever um, shared my experiences from H4. What's the, why is that? I mean, what, have you not had the opportunity or, um, yeah, it just seems like that's, that's some pretty big stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I'm embarrassed. Mm.
Does it feel different? Uh, yeah, because, you know, after 30 Mile, all these folks, you know, kind of tucked me under their wing a little bit. and You know, all the heavy hitters <clears throat> started helping me out on my journey. So Mark Lenane, Fred Scheffler, Greg Overacker, Jim Cook, Ted Mason, George Jackson, Paul Musser, You know, the the core group of folks out there that that uh, people look up to. So when this happened, you know, I had the opportunity after 30 Mile to, you know, work with the best of the best. And I go to Region 3 to be a hot shot. And the first time, you know, we had some tough shifts with Flag the first season and going into the second season, but this is the first time since 30 Mile that I had been in a situation where, you know, it got hot. And I, you know, missed opportunities to make better decisions and I wasn't able to focus because, you know, I freaked out. And so it's difficult for me to speak on because it just felt like I let those dudes down. And by letting them down, I let myself down, you know? So that's why not all for me is more difficult than 30 miles. Because I was embarrassed by my actions. But, you know, you work through it and you you move forward, so... Yeah. Well, when it came out of the hole, I did my best. And like I said, once we kind of stopped operations and were truly stuck there, that's when I started freaking out. So, like I said, that looking at that picture is tough because it takes me right back to it. But, yeah. you know... Uh, Danny kept me in check, and we dumped a lunch sack out on the ground, and Chris Wilcox came down and checked on me and started breathing into a bag, you know, just trying to snap out of it, so to speak. And that helped out tremendously, just having Danny there. And then once I kind of snapped out of it, you know, realized the severity of the situation, and, you know, we started digging and preparing you know, a deployment site, and I can honestly say that there are other people there that weren't actually, you know, that were just as uncomfortable as I was, whether or not I helped that or was a a hindrance to it because I wasn't in a good spot, and then I don't quite, quite rightly recall if Paul told us to deploy or not, but I just remember sheltering up and and then that just sucked too because then I just started apologizing to Paul from in my, inside my shelter, which 
probably didn't help other people's nerves, but I just remember a couple of times just saying, sorry, Paul. Man. Yeah, and then after we got out of the shelters, it was just kind of operational mode, and I had snapped out of it, but from the time my brain started eating itself and when I was in my shelter is was pretty crappy based on the fact that I felt that I had let a lot of people down. So I have a hard time understanding, you know, throughout this journey that I've, I've had, why is that? Is that the, the letting people down part? Yeah. Is it like a cultural thing? Is it part of my upbringing or what? But that's basically what I, what I get out of this is I think about it a lot. Well, I would imagine there's people that have experienced something similar or there's a young person that's about to and what if like what if you had access to that person that that had had like crazy serious trauma just you know just like you and but they had not yet reached their second you know what I mean what you call battle tested they haven't gotten there yet you know what would you what would you talk to them about what would you tell them The first thing that comes to mind is like is remain calm, but that's just hilarity, right? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, like, I would say that you just have to you have you have to be mindful of what your body is doing and how your mind has the ability to take over your body, right? So just kind of relax your shoulders and breathe a little bit. That's kind of what I've been telling folks this past week. We did some S212 stuff and you know I had three people brand new to chainsaw operations that I was going to cert and it was obvious that I was making them nervous and potentially intimidating them a little bit not not on purpose for my part but that's just kind of one of those things you know the supervisor syndrome where your supervisor shows up and you totally change the direction of where you're going because you don't want to make a mistake yeah but going back to that person that has had a near miss or any type of uh, traumatic injury, just if they're truly wanting to stay within the scope of duty that they had that traumatic incident, just be prepared to realize that your brain is going to want to take over if you're not ready for it. So just having that good connection with what your body will do, where you're at physically, and mentally, and if it does happen, just to learn how to breathe again and take some deep breaths and actually survey the threat. What's the actual threat? You know, is the hyperventilation and the <clears throat> the nervousness a trigger from your past experience, or is there an actual threat that you're being placed in front of? And then you can go from there as far as what you need to do to get yourself back to center so you can... Uh, Respond to the threat, not react to it. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, that's crucial there. And that's and what I did. I totally reacted and I shut down and started hyperventilating and just totally locked up because I was reacting to that. Um, and that happened as soon as I stopped having a task, which was bucking up logs and chucking them off the edge of the hell of spot. Mm-hmm. And I was focused and just you know 
making fun of my saw partner because he never wore a shroud because he thought shrouds were lame. But as soon as the fire came up out of the hole, he's digging in his pack looking for a shroud, you know. <clears throat> and I've always been a shroud guy, so I just popped my down and started teasing him and then kept cutting, you know. Yeah. As soon as I stopped operations, it was a done deal. Then we got in the shelter and I started apologizing and that's another embarrassing thing, you know. We try and have fortitude in this organization and you get involved in this situation and you just want to apologize, which is a totally different conversation about human nature and the culture we live in. And then once we came out of the shelters, you know, I was, you know, the threat was was uh, less drastic and and I just remember you know, taking some photos, my saw burned up because it was next to a stump and the stump caught on fire in the hella spot. And, and we started hiking out of there up towards the Aspen stand and I kept my shelter with me in case I needed to use it again. I think the order was is leave your shelter there and for the investigation. I was like, screw that, I'm taking this thing with me. And we worked our way up to the Aspen stand and that's where we came across that whole other situation. But from the time I left my shelter, I was had refocused and had a task and was able to power through it without any issues. Tom has this final thought to offer with regard to the use of shelters down at H4. It's something he's thought a lot about. Where my brain goes, I always, I'm always trying to justify why I got in my shelter because it's, it's, you know, it's, oh, they sheltered up. Oh, man, that's bad. Or what a bunch of wussies they got in their shelter. But I also say that I wasn't my, I wasn't the first person in the shelter. And I don't know why I always say that. Well, I wasn't the first person in the shelter. It doesn't matter if I was the first or the second. But I always kind of felt that they blamed the deployment on, well, Taylor was there and he freaked out. So then I just told everybody to get in their shelters. And that's, and that's okay if that happens, but that's just kind of one of the things that always comes to mind when somebody asks me about Nuttall. After Nuttall, Thomas had some tough choices to face. After Nuttall, I had a, chat with Paul and I just told him I needed to be in a, a position where I could make decisions and he was super cool with that and you know I bailed I left the crew and that's really hard too that's super embarrassing because you know I, I gave up I couldn't be a hot shot I don't have a hot shot belt buckle I think I have a sweatshirt in the closet somewhere. <laughs> no, but that was hard, you know. And I think it's okay. I can, on the outside as a shell, I can say it's okay that you that I tried to be a Type One firefighter and I wasn't able to complete the summer. On the inside, it tears me up. So, you know, I had to deal with that and, and move forward to 
be in a position where I could make decisions. Um, and I went back to Leavenworth. Leavenworth uh, Ranger District is where I started, and they've always been super nice to me. So I went back there and started uh, marking timber. And about two weeks into it, I'm up Tumwater Canyon outside of Leavenworth laying out a timber unit. And just by habit, I was scanning air to ground and x-ray pop-up was up the icicle and his tail rotor hit a snag and he augered into the hellespot and succumbed to his injuries. And I was listening to that on the radio. And then I was overhearing the traffic from the folks at the hellespot back to dispatch that they had a mishap, right? And we had flown with that pilot and X-ray Papa a couple of weeks before the nut all, so I, it was all fresh. And the first thought I had when I was hearing this over the radio was like, man, I can't get away from this. And it triggered not all in a triggered 30 mile and I just ran back to the truck full speed because just hearing the radio traffic of a aviation accident brought all these demons back up and I just boogied back down to the truck and went back for the day and I can't remember I think I lied to him and told him that I got pushed out of the unit by some bears, but the truth of it was I freaking flipped out and bailed down to the truck because my brain started eating itself. And that right there kind of started the process of I needed some, uh, you know, I needed to go down the road of talk therapy and start working through that process and learning how the mind works so I can continue on on the basic of just being a functioning human. I didn't really look too far forward to wanting to, you know, be the decision maker that I told Paul I wanted to be, but I knew after that point that I needed to start figuring some stuff out mentally. I'm thinking of it as a muscle. And so that's kind of where I went with that, with the talk therapy stuff. You can't expect somebody to just say, yeah, yeah, let me jump on a podcast and, and tell you this stuff. That's what I don't want to depict. It's like, yeah. no, you've, you've done some real intentional stuff to be able to, to process these things. And, and that's kind of the, 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 the thing I, I feel like there's power in promoting is because our culture tends to promote an opposite approach, which is so destructive. Yeah, and I don't want to paint a picture like I'm this awesome dude or anything. I still have plenty of things that I need to work on, but I will promote the ability that if you feel that you don't need to go down the road of, of talk therapy and things of that nature, and the individual has the the family strength and the community strength and, you know, religion, whatever the case may be, that you know, everybody's journey is going to be different. 
but there are things out there that can help with that journey. And one of those things is just, you know, the talk therapy and, and, you know, learning how the brain reacts with the body, uh, understanding all our culture. And, you know, for me, it hasn't, it hasn't been an easy, it hasn't been an easy journey, but it's, you know, for me, every day is a gift. And when I say that, people think I'm full of crap, but it truly, I truly live by that mantra. Yeah, I would, I, I can, I can see how that, uh, how one can arrive at that perspective. Yeah. And then it really, and then 2007, I had a super guy panic attack and my heart rate was 300 beats a minute. Uh, and that's where, it, where I fully went down the road of understanding my brain and learning and more and more intensive talk therapy. Um, you know, medication. Uh, I happen to have a talk therapist that talked of medication as just being a fire extinguisher uh, for some of those things that occurs with the brain. And it was designed to just kind of reset a baseline until my brain and body got back in sync with each other. So I was on, I can't remember what it was, but it was some medication for like three months. And he's like, after three months, you're going to get off of this and you're going to have the tools to work through your anxiety and your panic attacks. <clears throat> and if you're having a difficult time working with the tools that you've been given, then I'll give you Xanax, right? <clears throat> and Xanax is this big thing. And uh, But for me, it worked. Uh, there's a Rush song out there called Xanadu. And When I took a Xanax once, when I was freaking out, I was like, whoa, this stuff's awesome. Sorry for the random rush insert there. I thought it would serve to lighten the mood a bit. If you're not familiar with Rush, you might check them out on YouTube. They are very 1970s, if you couldn't tell from the clip from the song Xanadu that Thomas just referenced. Back now to Thomas and his description of, again, his willingness to utilize the tools at his disposal, including prescription medication. The trap that I didn't fall into, that I knew it was a temporary solution to a, what could potentially be a permanent problem. So, you know, I worked through that journey where I always had Xanax on me just in case I freaked out. And if I forgot it, I'd go back to the house and get it. Kind of like with people with their cell phones. If you forget your cell phone, you immediately turn around and go get it. Well, that's what it was like for me with the Xanax. And then after, you know, a year or two, it's, you know, I don't even have any of it on me anymore. I think I have a couple in my fire pack just in case. But other than that, I was able to <clears throat> use medication as a positive manner until I figured out how to you know, squelch my internal dialogue and use my brain a little bit more instead of letting it eat itself. In the wake of the 30-mile fire, the Nuttle fire, and the X-ray Papa helicopter crash, Thomas acknowledged that he needed help, professional help, to help him keep his brain from eating itself, as he says. This is admirable. It can be tough to ask for help, whether you're moving a bucked round or humping QBs up the hill. Those are things we're familiar with, and we can be reluctant to ask for a hand. 
What about when we're dealing with things that we're not familiar with, like emotional reactions to traumatic events? That's when we might all benefit from expert help. Kudos to Thomas for his willingness to share this particular part of his post-Nuttle journey. Here now are some of the big lessons Thomas has to offer from his experience on the Nuttle fire. There's a few of them. The first has to do with reframing a concept we're all familiar with, the escape route, into something a little bit more explicit, escape time. Listen in as Thomas thinks about why it is that this could be an important way to think about the escape route. Typically what we have is four rules of engagement. If you think of it as lookout, communication, escape route, safety zone, and how I've replaced escape route with escape time as I go through the course of history and look at some of these uh, entrapments and deployments and stuff, uh, there's a trend there with inadequate escape time. And that's kind of where my focus is now. What do you think of that concept of escape time? It's one thing to explicitly mark an escape route and make it known. Sure, we time escape routes in certain situations, perhaps less than we should. What if we reframed the concept of an escape route to have time as the central element? Escape time. The second big lesson has to do with this notion of stories. Stories matter. And when firefighters stand up and share a particular story associated with a close call or a tragedy event, as Thomas and Dan and Corey and Jason and others have with the Nuttle Fire, we have the opportunity to share lessons, learn, expand our understanding of what it is that fire can sometimes do, and how people who respond to fire react to those unique situations. Stories matter. I'm glad that we're talking about Nuttall so many years down the road because there are a ton of teachable moments within it. You know, I am me, and I've ex- and I can just sum it up with that. But I have some things that potentially could help somebody else. And if somebody asks for help, or comes across something that I've done that will pop back in their brain when they're experiencing something that I've gone through, and it helps them out, then you know, I'm I'm successful. Do you have a story to share? A lesson? that could help another firefighter, that could help the Wildland Fire Service? Reach out to us. Perhaps we can help you share your story. Another of Thomas's Nuttall lessons has to do with communication, particularly the role leaders can play communicating with folks who go through bad deals, close calls, traumatic events, after the event, perhaps years later leadership and you have an employee that's involved in a traumatic incident, not to forget about them. And for me, I think it's super important to keep in touch with those folks. Even if it's two or three years down the road. Because I myself have never gotten a call from somebody and said, hey, man, how's it going? I've gotten that from some of my friends and 
colleagues, but never from a, a leader. Don't forget about your employees. Reach out to them because it means a lot. Would have helped me along my journey a little bit if somebody would have called me a year or two later. And what's up? You doing all right? Where are you at? Yeah, man, that's that's a huge, huge lesson because it's so actionable. You can yeah. do that. You can you can send somebody a text. You can give them a phone call, and 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 it's it's a big deal. Yeah, and I, you know, and I I don't want to say that it's not happening. It's just never happened to me, and so that's something that I work on as a leader. Always. You know, keeping tabs on folks, even if it's a year or two later, or more importantly, in January, the first winter after the event, when it's all dark and gnarly and you can, you know, everyone goes skiing and does their thing, but, you know, those can be some of my interesting evenings, that's for sure. So I would say that would be a teachable moment out of not all is just keep tabs on your folks and check in every now and then especially from a leadership standpoint. The last in Thomas's great series of lessons from the Nuttle Fire is another lesson in leadership. You heard from two squad leaders earlier in the week, Dan and Corey, who were both squad leaders on the Flagstaff Interagency Hotshot Crew on July 2nd, 2004. Thomas makes it clear that he feels Dan and Corey both played a significant role in the outcome on the Nuttle Fire. The lesson here is that our first-line supervisors, our first-line leaders, squad leaders, crew bosses, can have real impacts on events like the Nuttle Fire. Are you a squad leader? Are you a crew boss trainee? Take this to heart. Your actions, your decisions, Your ability to lead when it matters could have a huge impact. Here's Tom giving us his final words on Dan and Corey. You know, and I was just always wondered what would have have the outcome been if Corey hadn't have been leading the charge. You know, so Danny was kind of, Danny saved my life on the hella spot. I, I can say that wholeheartedly. Just as Corey saved those folks by hanging a left and going into the Aspen stand. Where the original intent was to head back up to DP-20. Dan, Corey, nice work. This has been the special Nuttle Fire series of podcasts. Thanks a ton to Thomas Taylor and Travis Dotson for letting me record their great discussion. It's been a privilege to be able to listen in and throw in my two cents. Special thanks to Brian Hicks for the help with the fancy new sound equipment here in Tucson. I'm still learning how to use it. Music this week, Far Come the Days from the band Letterbox. Other music comes to us from Jonathan McLaughlin, another wildland firefighter who helped out with recording equipment and provided us with a great recording of his tune, Then Again. Be sure to surf on over to wildfirelessons.net there, be sure to subscribe to What's New so you can get all the latest reports and Lessons Learned Center products. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. We do not, I repeat, we do not have a MySpace account. Nope. And finally, thanks a ton for your time.
Recently, I told Travis I'm not yet super familiar with our new recording equipment. I haven't really had the time to get extremely familiar with it. What do you think of that? What's the... Why is that? I mean, what have you not had the opportunity or... Um, yeah, it just seems like that's... Someday. Someday I won't disappoint you. 